Amen. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. Father, we do come this morning to do uh, just what that last song reminded us of. We do come to to draw near to Christ, uh, Lord, to trust on his promises, to be reminded of his sacrifice, to rest in the work that he's done for us. And so, Lord, I pray that in this passage of scripture that we're going to be looking at, that uh, Lord, you would open our hearts, that you would speak clearly to us, that we would just see afresh what you've done for us through our Savior, and that we would draw near to him this morning. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Go and grab your Bibles with me this morning, church, and open up to Colossians. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And uh, remember that this is one of the 13 letters that we have in our New Testaments that was written by the Apostle Paul. And it's fairly um, unusual, not the only letter like this, but it's one of the letters that Paul wrote to a church that he had never actually been to. So Paul had never been to the city of Colossae. He's not the one who had gone there and preached the gospel. He is not the one who had planted this church. But that's not to say that he wasn't connected to this church. I mean, one of the main ways he was connected is that um, a guy named Epaphras had been converted under Paul's ministry. Epaphras had been discipled under Paul's ministry. And Epaphras was from this region of Colossae. And he is the man who had gone back to this area, had preached the gospel. These churches had been formed in these different communities. And so Paul, through Epaphras, was connected. But that's not the only connection that Paul had. I haven't mentioned this before, but um, it fascinates me to think of it. So you remember Paul wrote Colossians while he was a prisoner in the city of Rome. So he was arrested in Jerusalem, transported to Rome. He ended up spending a couple years as a Roman prisoner. Well, while Paul was a prisoner in Rome, he ended up um, encountering a runaway slave from the city of Colossae. Do you know the name of the runaway slave from the Bible by any chance? His name was Onesimus. So Onesimus was a runaway slave from the city of Colossae who not only had run away from Colossae, but had stolen from his owner when he ran away. And Onesimus ends up encountering Paul. By the way, what's the name of Onesimus' owner that he had run away from? His name was Philemon. Okay, so Philemon was a member of the Colossian church. In fact, we find out elsewhere that the, the church of Colossae actually met in Philemon's house at least for a while. So Onesimus runs away from Colossae. He encounters Paul in Rome, and Onesimus is converted. He becomes a follower of Jesus. And so Paul sends this runaway slave back to Colossae, back to Philemon to make things right. And with that, Paul sends instructions to Philemon. He tells Philemon that he's to receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, but as a brother. And where do we find those instructions from Paul to Philemon? In the book of Philemon in your Bible. So we have one letter from Paul to the Colossian church, but we have another letter from Paul to a member of the Colossian church. So he writes a letter to the church, that's the book of Colossians. He writes a letter to a member of that church, that's the book of Philemon. And those two letters, Colossians and Philemon, were carried back by a man named Tychicus. Tychicus, whose name's mentioned later, is the guy who delivered these two letters to this church. And Tychicus was also carrying with him another letter. At the same time that Paul wrote Colossians and Philemon, he also wrote a letter to the church of Ephesus. 
And so Tychicus was carrying with him three New Testament letters. He was carrying the letter to Philemon. He was carrying the letter to the Colossians. And at the same time, he was also delivering a letter to the church of Ephesus, what we have in our Bibles as Ephesians. And I point that out because if you ever sit down and you read Colossians and Ephesians back to back, you'll notice tons of parallels in these two books. Well, Paul's writing them at the same time. He mentions a lot of the same themes. If you, the, the well-known passage in Ephesians 5 where Paul gives instructions to husbands and their wives and children and servants, that passage is paralleled in Colossians 3 where Paul goes through the same instructions to the same group. So there's, there's connections. Okay, so just kind of file that away in your mind because in the days ahead we'll make connections between Colossians and Ephesians. So as Paul's writing this letter to the church of Colossae, there's familiarity with Philemon. He's going to write to Philemon. There's a connection to the church of Ephesus that's just up the road. Well, we just came through last week what might be the most important passage of Scripture in the Bible when it comes to understanding who Jesus is. So it's coming right on the heels of Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14, where Paul has just said that we are redeemed through Jesus' blood. And it's like when he says that, Paul feels like he needs to hit the pause button for just a minute. So we're redeemed by Jesus, but one of the big problems going on in Colossae is there were false teachers teaching a distorted view of who Jesus is. So, so Paul feels the need at the end of verse 14 to take a quick detour, and he spends the next seven verses or so explaining in detail who this Jesus is who shed his blood so that we can be redeemed. And Paul's definition of Jesus is he is the image of the invisible God. All things, Paul says, were created by Jesus and through Jesus and for Jesus. He is, uh, or rather he says that the, the fullness of deity is pleased to dwell in Christ. He's not an angel. He's not a created being. He is God himself. Well, once Paul establishes again who Jesus is, now that he's made that clear, he's going to get back into describing salvation. So verses 13 and 14, he was talking about salvation. He stops to remind us of who this is who saves us, who is Jesus. And now that he's done that, he's going to dive back into our salvation. Okay, so if your Bible's open... We're picking up this morning in Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. We're only going to read a few verses, down to verse 23. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 21. This is the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he writes, And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death, to present you holy, and blameless, and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. Now, just three verses, and we'll look at it under real, three real simple headings. Paul describes our past, he describes our present, and he describes our future. So let's start with our past. You might have noticed that at the beginning of verse 21, there's a big shift in the subject. For instance, back up to verse 15. Notice the subject that Paul's been focused on. Back in verse 15, Paul says, He 
is the image of the invisible God. Verse 16, by him, verse 17, and he is before all things. Verse 18, he is the head of the body. Verse 20, by him to reconcile. Did you see how the verses before this, Paul has been focusing entirely on Jesus. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what Jesus has done. But then you come to verse 21 and Paul begins with the words, and you. Okay, so he's, he's changing his focus now from defining Jesus to telling us what we have in Jesus. So he's shifting from the nature of Jesus to the blessings that we have as followers of Jesus. So what you're getting in these three verses is Paul is just loading these people down with truth about the blessings of salvation. If you're in Jesus, this is what's yours in Jesus. That's what he's doing in these verses. But that's not how he starts it. So listen to me now. So it's true, it's true that what we have in Jesus is far better than you and I could have ever imagined. But the first thing Paul wants us to understand is that our condition apart from Jesus is far worse than we ever imagined. That this is the pattern that you see, see Paul so often follow in the Bible, is that as Paul's getting ready to describe salvation, as Paul's getting ready to explain what we are as Christians and what we have as Christians, he starts that by explaining what we are apart from Christ. He starts his explanation of salvation by helping us understand what we were before God saved us. And he follows this pattern. I just mentioned the connection between Colossians and Ephesians. This shows up so clearly in Paul's letter to the Ephesian church. For instance, in, in Ephesians 2, Paul's describing salvation. We've been made alive. We've been brought near to God. But how does he start that section? Well, he says, you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh. Why, why does he spend all that time describing what we were before God saved us? Well, it's like Paul doesn't think we'll ever really appreciate what it means to be saved if we don't understand where we were before God saved us. If we don't understand what our condition was, because our tendency even as Christians sometimes is to think, well, sure, I've done a few things wrong. I've made a few mistakes along the way. But the Bible wants to say that our problem isn't just what we've done. Our problem is who we are. Our problem is so much bigger and so much deeper than we usually want to imagine it as being. Our problem is who we are, particularly in relationship to God. That's how Paul starts his letter, both in Ephesians and Colossians, in describing salvation. Our condition is so much worse than we would ever imagine on our own. And we don't like to think about that. There's the story uh, about a Christian lady who was living in Great Britain. This is back in the 17th century. And she was friends with some of the British royalty there in England. And one of her friends was the Duchess of Buckingham. And so she invited the Duchess, who was not a faithful follower of Jesus, she invited the Duchess of Buckingham to go to a service where the great evangelist George Whitfield was going to be preaching. And so the Duchess went to the service where George Whitfield was preaching. And after the service, she wrote a note to her friend who had invited her, telling her what she thought about George Whitfield's preaching. And here's what she wrote in that note to her friend that's been preserved in history. She wrote, 
It is monstrous to be told that you have a heart as sinful as the common wretches that crawl the earth. This is highly offensive and insulting. That was her take on what the Bible says about our condition apart from Christ. She was offended and she was insulted. And I think that's not that unusual. We we don't like to think that our position apart from Christ is all that bad. Well, you'll notice in the passage we just read, Paul begins it by giving us three words or three phrases to describe what our condition is before salvation. So notice the first thing that Paul says. Number one, Paul says that we were alienated. Alienated means uh, estranged, cut off, separated, outcast. Well, who is Paul saying we were alienated from? Who were we estranged from? Well, Paul's saying that by nature we were estranged from God. You and I, by nature were cut off from the God who made us. Why? Here's the way Isaiah explains it. This is Isaiah 59 verse 2. He says, But your iniquities have separated you from your God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. God is holy and we're sinners, which has created an enormous fissure between us and God. And that's not just the condition of the guys who are sitting on death row. That is the condition of every single human being by nature. If you have never repented of your sins and turned to Jesus, this is the Bible's description of you. If you have turned to Jesus in faith, this is what the Bible says you were before God saved you. You you weren't just a little distant from God, you were completely estranged from God. The relationship was completely broken, alienated. What's the second word that he uses to describe us? Paul says we were, again in verse 21, we were enemies. Or your translation might say we were hostile in our minds. So now Paul's describing what our attitude was toward God. So before salvation, your thoughts My thoughts and attitude toward God were thoughts and attitudes of hostility. In other words, our problem with God wasn't just external. It wasn't just things we had done on the outside. Our problem with God was deeply internal. We weren't just neutral toward God. We weren't just apathetic toward God. We were hostile to God. We had minds and hearts that were at enmity with God. I was just listening to uh, a, a Christian who's involved in apologetics ministry who was talking about ministry that he had done on college campuses and at the end of his presentation he would give opportunities for students there in the crowd to ask questions and he said that he would get often hostile questions and sometimes he said he would ask these students who stood up he would say hey if I could prove to you right now beyond a shadow of a doubt that Christianity is true would you believe it? And he said, increasingly, he gets the answer, no. Even if you could convince me intellectually it's true, I wouldn't believe it because the ultimate problem for most people is not intellectual, it's moral. The ultimate reason why most people believe is not because there's some huge intellectual obstacle. The reason most of us don't believe is because there's a huge moral obstacle. I know if God is real and this is true, 
He has a claim over my life. I'm obligated to bend to His authority. And we don't want to bend to God's authority. We don't like anybody telling us what to do, including God. Here's the way Paul explains what it means to be hostile in our minds. This is Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, Paul's going to use very similar language. I pick it up in verse 6, where Paul says, To be carnally or fleshly minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind, this is our natural mind, the carnal mind is enmity against God. For it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Do you see Paul's explanation of what it means to have a mind that's hostile to God? Having a mind that's hostile to God means we will not be subject to the law of God. I will not tolerate God telling me what to do. I will not tolerate God exercising any authority over me. You see this demonstrated in the most drastic extreme ways in our world today, right? Where you're constantly seeing people who are saying, well, God might have made me male, but if I say I'm a woman, I'm a woman. God doesn't get to tell me what marriage is. I'll decide what marriage is. God does not get to define what right and wrong are for me. I'll decide what is right and wrong for me. And that's just an extreme example of what is raging in the heart of every single person apart from the grace of God. The battle that's raging in our hearts are or is, I will be my own God. I will call the shots for me. And I'll convince myself I'm okay with God even as I live in abject rebellion against God because I get to make the rules. Well, Paul's saying that's what lies at the heart of every single fallen human being. We have hearts that are naturally hostile to God. And then finally, here's how that hostility shows up. The final phrase that Paul used to describe what we were as Christians, as he says in verse 21, we were enemies in our minds by wicked works. Now notice what he's doing. In these three phrases, he's defined our status, our attitude, and our behavior. Our status is we were alienated from God. Our attitude is we were hostile to God. And our behavior is wicked. So hostile, alienated, and we do wicked deeds. That's his description. If you have never humbled yourself and repented and turned to Jesus, this is where you are with God right now. And I know that's probably not how you think of yourself right now. All right, because we're trained to think, okay, come on, God, God loves me. God, I make mistakes, but God understands that. He gets us, right? There's a whole ad campaign. He gets us. God understands. It's no big deal to God. That, that is the heart of our problem is we tend to think that God is kind of like us. That he's, he's sort of similar to us. That God's there to be our cosmic therapist. He's there just to pick us up when we're feeling a little bit down. God's there as our heavenly nanny. He's there just to come along and whisper in our ears, you're smart and you're kind and you're important and remind us of how great we are. But what if God is nothing like that at all? What if God's not our therapist and he's not our nanny? What if he is the potter and we are the clay? Because that's actually what the Bible says. 
He's the potter, we're the clay, and what if our sin is not just some minor issue? What if our sin is deeply offensive to God? You know, we talk a lot about the personal nature of God. We talk as Christians that that we can have a personal relationship with God. That is wonderful, gloriously true. God is personal. But here's the other side to that. The other side to that is that means that God takes our sins personally. Our sins are not just crimes against some abstract law. Our sins are offensive against a person. Our sins are attacks on the character and the sovereignty of God. Okay, so if you're a Christian, this is where you were. You you weren't just neutral and God saved you. We were alienated, hostile, and wicked in our deeds before God. That's our past as Christians. Well, secondly, Paul describes our present. You see the words that sort of change the course of the sentence There at the end of verse 21 where he says, he's just described what we were and then he says, yet now, yet now. So he just said, you once were alienated, hostile, wicked, yet now. So something has changed. What's changed? Yet now, he has reconciled. We talked a little bit about that word reconciled last week because we were told up in Um, I think it was verse 20, that Jesus is reconciling all things to himself. This whole universe that has been wrecked by sin, Jesus is putting all of it back together. But what does it mean for a person to be reconciled to God? Reconciliation is one of those wonderful words the Bible uses to help us understand salvation. Words like justification and adoption. Here's the way... John MacArthur explains it. He says, In justification, the sinner stands before God guilty and condemned, but is declared righteous. In redemption, the sinner stands before God as a slave, but is granted his freedom. In forgiveness, the sinner stands before God as a debtor, but the debt is paid and forgotten. In reconciliation, the sinner stands before God as an enemy, but becomes his friend. So reconciliation is a relationship word. This same word is used in 1 Corinthians to describe a marriage that has been broken, where a husband and wife are estranged, a husband and wife have separated, but finally the the relationship is restored. That's That's what reconciliation is. It's two people who were at odds, who were brought back together, where a relationship goes from fracture to fellowship. It goes from enmity to friendship. It goes from brokenness to, to fellowship. We've gone from hostility to being God's sons and daughters. And did you notice who took the initiative in this? Yet now, he reconciled. So who's the one who's taking the initiative in this reconciliation? God is. Now I want you to think about how unusual that is. Usually if there's a, there's a relationship, if you have a friend, if you have a family member and the relationship has been broken, usually for that relationship to be restored, it requires a little give and take by both parties. Because even if one person was mostly wrong, because we're sinners, we all have things we could have done better. And so for the relationship to come back, the party who was most wrong has to say, I'm sorry, and both parties give a little bit, a little bit of ground. 
But you see how this is saying that's actually not how it worked with us and God. Because we were the ones who did all the wrong. You and I were the ones who broke the relationship. You and I were the ones who offended God. And yet God, the offended party, he didn't wait for us to take the first step. God, the offended party, didn't wait for us to come to him because we never would. Instead, God is the one who initiated this. God reconciled. How? So if we were at enmity, if we were hostile to God, how was that hostility ever restored to a place of peace? Well, he explains it. Look at the next verse, verse 22. He is reconciled, verse 22, in the body of his flesh through death. Now in verse 20, Paul said something very similar. He said in verse 20 that we're reconciled through the blood of his cross. Well now he says the same thing in a slightly different way. We're reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. I think Paul is using that word body there intentionally. You remember us talking before about the, the false teaching that had seeped into this area? And one of the elements of it was uh, an early form of Gnosticism. And what Gnosticism did is it, it drew a hard line between the spiritual and the physical. It, it said that there's, there's God and there's these different emanations that have come down from God like stair steps. And one of those emanations finally made the world and everything made was evil in Gnosticism. So the whole physical world, every material thing in Gnosticism is bad. And so in that worldview, God would never take on a physical body. In that worldview, Jesus might have looked like he had a body, but he couldn't really have had a body. And so in response to that, Paul is saying, no, 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 no. The only way we could have been reconciled was by the Son of God taking on a body to die for us. Because God can't die. And so God took on flesh. He became a man so that he could taste death for us. He became a man because, well, you know the, the consequences. The wages of sin is, everybody should be able to say together, the wages of sin is death. Or Ezekiel says, the soul that sins shall surely die. So the verdict from heaven on all sin is death. So the only way we could be forgiven, the only way we could be reconciled to God was for the God-man, for Jesus to take on a body and in that body for him to face death in our place. So it wasn't just enough for God to become flesh. Yes, the fullness of deity dwelled in Jesus. It wasn't enough that God took on flesh. It wasn't enough that he performed miracles. It wasn't enough that he preached sermons. It wasn't enough that he lived a sinless life. The only way we could be reconciled was by God in flesh, in Jesus, in his body, experiencing death in our place. Here's the way Paul explains it a few verses from now. This is down in Colossians chapter 2. You can let your eyes move down the page to there. Colossians 2, look at verse 13. Paul's describing salvation and he says, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Do you see what that means? 
It means my entire record, listen, my entire record of sins against God was nailed with Jesus to the cross. He bore all of the guilt. He took all of the punishment so that everything that once stood between me and God has been taken out of the way by Jesus at Calvary. So our reconciliation was accomplished at the cross. Our reconciliation was sealed at the cross. And we now experience it. It's now applied to us when we believe. So Christian, I want you to think for just a minute about what that means for us. That means if you have repented and put your trust in Jesus, you're not just hoping that one day you'll be reconciled. You're not hoping that by the time you get to heaven, everything will get sorted out and you'll have peace with God. If your trust is in Jesus, you are right now reconciled to God. You are right now, and I should add the phrase, once and for all reconciled to God. Once and for all reconciled to God. I emphasize that because our tendency can be to think, sure, when I called out to Jesus to save me, I was reconciled. But every time I sin, that reconciliation gets thrown out of whack. When I repented and believed, at that moment, Jesus forgave me of all of my past sins. I trusted all of my past sins were forgiven, but the sins that I keep committing as I move forward, those ruin my reconciliation. You have considered, haven't you, that when Jesus died on the cross, every single one of your sins was still in the future. When Jesus died, you had no past sins. When Jesus hung on Calvary, every sin you would ever commit was looming in the future. And he hung on the cross to take the penalty for every single one of those sins. So we don't stay in limbo if your faith is in Christ. Where I'm constantly wondering, am I reconciled? Is there peace? Is there not peace? No. Romans 5 is true. There is there now for peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8. There's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There's no condemnation left for you because every bit of that condemnation was poured out on Jesus at the cross. So if your trust is in Jesus, the reconciliation between you and God is full, it is complete, and it is final. Okay, that's where we stand now, reconciled. There's one more point that Paul makes. Number three, Paul makes a point about our future. So through Jesus, we have reconciliation, but that's not the end game. Because the Bible says that one day you and I are going to stand before God and give an account. Right? It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. You and I will stand before God as judge. So how's that day going to go? Well, Paul tells us in the next phrase that Jesus saved us with that day in view. Here's how he says it. Look back down at your text. Look at the second part of verse 22. We were reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to, or in order to, present you holy and blameless and above reproach, in his sight. So Jesus died to reconcile us 
so that when the day of judgment comes, he will present us before God the Father. That means when you and I stand before God, we will not stand before God the Father on our own. I won't be left having to plead my own case. I won't be left having to rely on my own record. Jesus on that day will present us. And how will he present us? This almost seems unbelievable when Paul says, here's how he's going to present us. He's going to present us holy and blameless and above reproach. Now, just let's be honest for just a minute. Do you not have a tendency to read that and go, wait a second. So Jesus is going to present me so that God the Father on the day of judgment is going to look at Jared Everson and say, I see him holy, blameless, and above reproach. What? Holy? Holy, that's pure, sinless. Just in the last 48 hours, my life has been chock full of sin. He's going to find me on that day blameless? Are you kidding me? There's a million things in the last 24 hours that I could rightly be blamed for. How could God ever see me blameless? And then above reproach. Above reproach means no charges will stick. There are no legitimate charges that can be laid against me. What? Just about everybody who knows me could bring a legitimate charge. Every one of you who knows me more than just as an acquaintance could bring a charge against me. Some flaw you've seen. Some sin that's poked its head up. So how could God ever look at me and he knows everything about me? How could God look at me and, and see me as holy, blameless, and above reproach? Listen to how Paul says it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is the answer to that question. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Paul says, For he made him, this is Jesus, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's, that's the answer. Jesus was credited with my sin at the cross, and now through faith, I'm credited with his righteousness. There's a song we're going to be singing in the coming months that describes this so well. It goes, his robes for mine, a wonderful exchange. Clothed in my sin, Christ suffered neath God's rage. Draped in his righteousness, I'm justified. In Christ I live, for in my place he died. And then my favorite verse of the song goes, his robes for mine, what anguish none can know. Christ, God's beloved, condemned as though his foe. He, as though I, accursed and left alone. I, as though he, embraced and welcomed home. That, that the only way that I ever could be found holy, blameless, and above reproach in God's sight is because God the Father sees me in Jesus. His robes for mine, that's the exchange. He took my robes, which are filled with blame, and took the consequences for it at the cross, and now through faith, I'm seen in His perfect righteousness. So church, make sure you live your life in light of that reality. You are this minute reconciled, and when the day of judgment comes, 
Jesus, your Savior, will present you holy, blameless, and above reproach before God. Live in that. Don't, don't let yourself live under the constant weight of the sins of your past. Are you ever tempted to do that? Listen, we learn from the past, we cling to the cross in light of the past, but we don't let ourselves just endlessly cycle back through all of our past sins. Constantly feeling guilty about past sins is not a Christian virtue. We don't live under the weight of past sins because we have a Savior who took the full consequences of those sins. We have a Savior who bore all the guilt of those sins. We have a Savior who took all the condemnation of those sins so that I don't have to stand before God condemned. So we have the promise that on that day of judgment, I don't have to live as a believer in uncertainty. What in the world is that day going to look like? Because I'm found in Christ. God has already declared me in Christ to be righteous. And on that day, he'll find me holy, blameless, and above reproach. And then there's, there's one more verse in this little section. Verse 23. Paul continues, If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. Now you've got to get what Paul's saying here. So all these wonderful promises that Paul's talking about. Reconciliation, holiness in God's sight. We don't get those promises as some sort of magic spell. Where if you just align yourself with the right evangelist and he says the right words over you, you're blameless. Where you just say the right incantation before God and you're found blameless. No, no. All of these promises, reconciliation, blameless in God's sight, all of these promises are ours only through faith. And so Paul's plea in verse 23 to these believers is, so, church, continue in the faith. So, church, endure in the faith. Because if you don't, do not deceive yourself. If you don't continue in the faith, If you don't endure, none of these promises are for you. John Woodhouse explained it this way. He said, Do not imagine that a person who abandons the faith will be presented blameless before Christ. A person whose confidence is in Christ, a person whose confidence in Christ has collapsed, can have no such hope. There's therefore nothing more important for you in life than persisting in your dependence on Christ. Firmly established in your faith in Him. Paul's urging us to persevere in the faith. You understand, the gospel does not just call us to believe in Jesus once. Like, just believe in Jesus for a few minutes, get that taken care of, and then go on with your life. No, no. Christians aren't people who once believed. We are believers. Christians are not people who once followed Jesus We are followers of Jesus. And what you consistently get in the Bible is that real saving faith has an enduring quality to it. So that if your faith does not endure, if you turn away, if you fall away, if you walk away, that would be the sign that your faith was not real to start with. This is how John explains it writing into the context where there's false teaching and many who were once part of this community of believers have walked away and John's trying to help them understand what's happening. And here's his explanation. This is 1 John 2 verse 19. 
He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. So how does John help them understand these people who had once been part of their faith community and now they'd abandoned it? They had been, they'd gone after false teachers. How does he help them understand that? Were these people who had once been saved and now they had lost their salvation? No, John's explanation is the fact that they walked away from the faith is proof that they were never really part of the faith. Because those who have real faith continue. So when you're trying to counsel, I'll just say it this way. There was a habit in evangelical churches for a long time. When someone would come and initially profess faith in Jesus, they would immediately try to give that person assurance. They would say, well, if you just prayed that prayer, you are saved. You never need to doubt it. In fact, you need to turn to the back of your Bible. You need to write on the back of your Bible the date when you just prayed that prayer. And if for the rest of your life, if you ever doubt your salvation, you can open up your Bible, you can see the date when you prayed that prayer, and you can know that you really belong to God. You see the problem with that, right? The ultimate proof of assurance is not that I can look back on a date I have written in the back of my Bible. The ultimate proof of assurance is we continue in the faith. We keep clinging to Jesus. We didn't just cling to Jesus when we got real emotional at that evangelistic outreach event. We keep clinging to Jesus. There are times when our faith runs hot and times when it runs cold and it ebbs and flows. It's not the same endurance and strength and brightness, but there's a thread of faith that never vanishes. We will keep holding to Him. We'll keep enduring in the faith because that's what saving faith looks like. Here's what Jesus says. Listen to John chapter 8. This is verses 30 and 31. It says, as Jesus spoke these words, many believed in him. So what does Jesus do? How does he respond to many believing? Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, if you abide, abide means continue. If you continue in my word... You are my disciples indeed. In other words, what is it that a real follower of Jesus does? A real follower of Jesus continues, endures. And the reason why real followers of Jesus continue is because God makes sure that they continue. Listen to Paul in Philippians 1. Philippians 1 verse 6, Paul says, Being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Do you see the assurance of that? Paul's saying God always finishes what he starts. So if God has begun this work of grace in your life, God will see that work through to the end. I'll give you one more. Listen to 1 Corinthians 1, 8 and 9. Paul writes, He will also confirm, or your translation might say, He will also sustain you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul's saying, if you have been called into fellowship with Christ, this is the call of salvation, the effectual call. If God has called you, if God has brought you to life, if God God has awakened your heart so that you believe, God will sustain that work so that you will continue to believe. We're we're getting ready to have our book club on Pilgrim's Progress this week, so I have to give this illustration from Pilgrim's Progress. It's my favorite uh, picture, I think, of 
perseverance, of eternal security. You remember when Christian goes into the interpreter's house? Right after his conversion, he goes into the interpreter's house, and the interpreter is showing him these different scenes that are all designed to teach him some important lesson about the Christian life. And in one of those scenes, the interpreter takes him into this room where there is a fire burning in a fireplace. Those of you who are reading, do you remember this scene? There's a fire burning in the fireplace, and there's a man who's standing beside the fireplace who is shoveling out scoops of water, and he is constantly dumping water on this fire in the fireplace, but the fire keeps burning. And the interpreter explains that the fire in the fireplace represents the fate of a Christian, and that the man is Satan who is constantly trying to extinguish the fate in a Christian's heart. Okay, but the question remains, how is it that the fate keeps, how does the fire keep burning when water's being dumped on it? And do you remember the next part of that story? The interpreter takes him around to the backside of the fireplace. And there he sees another man who is constantly pouring oil onto the fire, constantly keeping the fire stoked. And the interpreter explains that this man represents Christ, who, um, something like, with the oil of grace, maintains the work that he began. Okay, so the God who begins that fire of faith in the heart of a true Christian is the same God who continues to pour the oil of grace on that fire. So when there is a genuine saving fire of faith, God ensures that fire keeps burning. So Christians persevere in the faith because God preserves their faith. And Paul says it a couple of different ways. He encourages them not just to continue. He encourages them to be grounded and steadfast. That's architectural language. It's like he's saying, you do not move off the foundation of the gospel. Don't move off the, the footers of Christ crucified. And then he says it negatively, that they're not to be moved away from the hope of the gospel. It's like he's saying to them, he's writing this to Christians, and he's saying, you don't move off the gospel. You don't walk away from this. You dig down into it. You drill into it. You feast on it because your soul and your eternity depends on it. So church, I I just want to urge you as we wrap this up, continue. Your need for Christ hasn't lessened since the day you believed. We depend on Christ for our righteousness every bit as much today as we did the moment we called out to Him for salvation. I am no more righteous before God on my own now than I was then. So I keep clinging to the cross. And so Paul says to this church, what you've believed, the gospel you've heard, this is that last phrase, is the same gospel that's being heard by every creature under the heavens. And his point there is, What's happening in Colossae wasn't just happening in Colossae. What's happening at Deanwood Baptist Church isn't just happening at Deanwood Baptist Church. This same gospel is being preached all over the world and God is bringing fruit everywhere that it's preached. And so what we are is we're people who have been caught up in this grand work that God's doing. We're people who have been pulled into this reconciliation ministry. Isn't that the way Paul 2 Corinthians 5, Paul spends a lot of time talking about this same concept, reconciliation. And you know what Paul says there? Paul says that those of us who have been reconciled to God, we are now, how does he word it? We are ambassadors of reconciliation. Meaning we've been reconciled to God and we're now called to go and plead with others, come, be reconciled. 
And that, that's my plea to you this morning. You are living your life at odds with God. If you have never repented and believed, you are living your life at odds with your Creator. Give up living for yourself. Let go of your pride. Come to Christ and be reconciled. And church, do you see what God has done for us? We were alienated. We were hostile. We were wicked. But now through Christ, we are reconciled. And we are blameless before God. That is the good news of salvation. Let's bow together for a word of prayer. I'm going to give you a few minutes just to go to the Lord there in your seat. And I, I would give you two challenges during this time. First, maybe you are living and have lived your life as an enemy of God's. You've convinced yourself in your mind because of your past or your upbringing or where you're from that you're okay with God even though you've lived your life at odds with God. And maybe God's call to you this morning is acknowledge where you are. You have a mind and a heart that is hostile to God. You're alienated from the God who made you. It's demonstrated by life lived in wickedness. Repent of that and turn to Christ. Be reconciled. You can do that this morning through faith in Christ. And then church, take a few minutes in your seat to thank God for what he's done. Acknowledge where you were. And then acknowledge that, that you and I are as dependent today as we have ever been on Christ. His body that was broken at the cross in our place. His righteousness that's credited to us. Thank God for that great work. So I'm going to give you a few minutes to pray in your seat, then I'll come close this.